Hi, um, so I was sharing with some of you guys. My name is Jenny Pack. Uh, I'm a professor. I teach at Fuller School of Psychology. And, um, you know, I am also a psychologist uh, as well as marriage family licensed therapist. So I, I have dual license. So if you ever want to do premarital, I'm always open. <laughs> Yeah, in marital too. <laughs> I, I had, my youngest client was three years old, and I have oldest client that is 80. Yeah, that's quite a range, right? So I do individual, couples, family, and so forth. Um, my area of special uh, focus is actually cultural psychology. So this is the area I research, as well as um, in my practice, this is a, a primary area of focus. Um, I teach and train many um, clinicians who are, you know, in our doctoral program going through the training. But I'm also, believe it or not, uh, I've been married over 30 years. I know. You think I got married when I was 10, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so my husband is a senior pastor at a Korean church in Pasadena called New Hope. Uh, Presbyterian Church, and uh, your pastor Ken actually had come and spoke, you know, at our church as well. And my husband and David uh, and, uh, and Pastor Ken know each other, so I'm just really, really thankful to be invited here. So thank you, Esther, for inviting me. <laughs> and yes, and I'm just delighted to finally just you know get acquainted, you know, face with name and, and so forth. Um, so what should I tell you? Um, so I was sharing with some of you guys that um, I have two daughters. Uh, I have a, um, one that is right now in college and an older daughter who recently graduated from her program uh, at LSC and she loved London so much she just decided to stay and we're just trying to have her back. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are truly empty nest. Um, but the reason why I think I'm just really grateful for this opportunity to speak to you is that college and young adult, this is a very critical time. Because um, I, when I reflect back at my own you know, spirit journey, as somebody was asking me, I would say that it was uh, at college that I really, truly gave my life to Christ. I was involved in Navigators at UCLA back then in the 80s, you know, and... Uh, that's when I knew that I could either work for this world or for the heavenly kingdom, and I decided, why, you know, work for something that would all burn away, right? So I decided to put my treasure in heaven. So I see that this is a church you are so passionate about mission, and it's fantastic. Um, I, uh, as a uh, faculty, I, I also taught at Biola for many years, and I used to go to Chiang Mai, which is sort of the mecca for missionaries, right? <laughs> so all the uh, missionary member care, I used to do the seminar there every year and uh, train missionaries who are wanting to learn more counseling skills uh, to better serve the missionary member care. I also have traveled to China. Um, somebody was mentioning Beijing. So Beijing and all over university in, uh, in China to do uh, psychology religion research, um, which Fuller has a really big program for China initiative, so we've been doing that. So those are just a little bit of my background in terms of how I've been weaving between culture, psychology, and um, I would say ministry. So as long as my husband and I have been married, 
you know, we shortly after we got married, we started um, studying together at Fuller. So he was working on his MDiv, and I was working on marriage family back then. And um, uh, at the time, I was just thinking that I would help him with ministry, and that's how you know I was only interested in doing uh, you know marriage family. But I quickly. Um, was dissatisfied with many things in psychology, and largely because psychology was, I would have to say, uh, a Western product, meaning that all the theoretical uh, people at the time all come from Western Europe, right, in North America. And uh, I was, you know, primarily interested in studying psychology to serve Korean community, because back then in the 80s, you know, when we began, uh, we started the ministry in the K-Town, um, and I saw the brokenness in the Korean community. Especially this is, I would say, shortly after post-1965 you know, immigration law change, the Korean immigrant uh, community was just, you know, at an early stage. Even though there's been like three waves of uh, migration, the, the last wave was the, you know, the most dominant. And so our, I would say Korean community is fairly young, right? So at the time, I saw that the cultural conflict between the, you know, the older generation and the children was a significant. And so, uh, you know, when we began ministry, that's what I wanted to focus on. And uh, I hate to say it, but I was very young and naive, and I thought if I just learned everything I could in psychology, I would just go out and just fix all the dysfunctional people in the church. (laughs) It wasn't that simple. Um, and I had a very wise husband who said, instead of trying to fixing them, you know, why don't you sit and love them? And that was the right answer. So I, I you know what, you know, I'm, I'm considered 1.5. I came to the United States when I was 10. So like many of the, you know, the mass exodus in Korea, I came as a child of immigrant, um, very young. And, uh, you know, my parents, like many, you know, most immigrants had to work very hard. Uh, to put their kids through school, right? Uh, so sandwiched between the you know first generation and I have children who are second generation, I'm considered 1.5, right? So really right in between. I used to think that it was a curse <laughs> because it was so difficult to navigate between the two culture um, and you know trying to figure out who am I. So I think that that's kind of where the college years, really, uh, all the identity crisis come to foreground. Um, so I, this is a long introduction, but this is all to say, you know, college and young adults are very much in my heart because I identify with the struggles, uh, what it means to be sandwiched in between, and, um, and this became my special focus, uh, both in terms of research as well as my clinical practice. So I have, um, even though I, I teach and train, I, I have a private practice and I see many young adults uh, who are dealing, I think, I would say primarily um, related to cultural issues, and they don't know it. At the time when people come in, usually it seems like all other, you know, um, clients, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, relational conflicts and so forth. But quickly we discover underneath all of that is cultural issues. Um, and so I will go into that more today. So that that's kind of my focus. I decided that today... Um, you know, Esther kindly invited me to do this in two parts. I've, I've led retreats and groups and so forth, so I can't really size up or down, but I decided to do this in two parts. So today I will focus predominantly in terms of culture and psychology, uh, 
or culture and self. Uh, you know, my area of focus is the self and growth and maturity, what it means um, in terms of health and so forth. But today I will focus more coming from the cultural side and then um, next week I will wrap it up and uh, uh, integrate more into the theological perspective. Okay, so bear with me today. I'm going to lay, lay down some basic kind of foundation. Um, integrating psychology and culture, okay? Let's bow our head before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these young lives. Um, you have called them. You know them by the, um, each of their names. Your imprint is on them, and we just give you thanks for your grace and your uh, call upon their lives Father, you have gathered us here today, and may you just guide our time together, and may this be a time of blessing. Help us, Lord, to know you more deeply, how you have made us wonderfully, and for us to discover what it truly means that you have loved us, and you continuously work in our lives to sanctify and glorify you. So just bless our time together and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right, so um, let's, see, let's see how much you know I could cover today. I, uh, yeah, sometimes I, I elaborate on certain things, and then I can go really fast in other sections. So um, let's see. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, I I would you know in my introduction I shared with you I focused in the '80s primarily through the Korean immigrant church. And what I observed in terms of the uh, the cultural value conflict that I saw, I thought this was unique to Korean immigrants, right? And what I realized since I've been traveling in the last maybe probably 10, 15 years to like, you know, East, Southeast Asia and China and Korea, and then, you know, exchange uh, with scholars and research and so forth, what I realized, what I observe is now at a global stage. So in the you know 70s when we migrated to the United States, um, what I was experiencing was really challenging because I you know my uh, family was uh, you know living in the Northern California, Central California to be exact, um, and it, back then in the 70s you know United States was still healing from the Vietnamese War, so being a minority, I was I was probably one of the very few Koreans in a small town, and there was a huge hostility poor Asians, uh, you know, there were a lot of racial slurs and constantly telling you to go home. And I'm thinking, where is my home? Because we're here, right? This is our home. Um, so, so what I was experiencing in terms of all that kind of uh, immigration challenge um, as a minority in this country, I realized that the cultural conflict is, has now grown at a global stage. Now, I don't know how you think about this. Why? You know, the what we think of as biculturalism, as an immigrant kind of condition, is now what I observe all across, right, the world as I travel. Uh, even in, like, Turkey. I've been to, you know, uh, missionary member care in Turkey as well. And this is, I think, it's like if, you know, if the word, uh, pictures, you know, can speak thousand words, I think this captures really well that hybridity. By, we call it in the United States biculturalism. On a global stage, this is, I think, considered as a hybrid culture, right? Where the clash between the West and the East, modern and the tradition, right? 
um, in some ways, the economic uh, condition, right, with the technology has speed up everything in a very, you know, fast pace. So that there's this kind of, I would say, global level of uh, cultural values conflict that's just clashing. Right? So if you're ever interested, there's a book called Clash, which captures uh, the level of conflict that individuals are dealing with all over the world. Okay, so we could see this. So I think that the, you know, uh, National Geographic was capturing the identity sort of crisis that is at the forefront, uh, forefront in, in terms of the globalization. And this is kind of my area of special focus because I've been trying to understand what does, how does the culture actually um, impact the individual? Because I'm a psychologist, so I'm interested in inside a person. At the deep level of who you are as a person, how does the culture, especially this kind of clash of conflict of cultures, impact you? And where I was deeply interested in is the, the, the formation of a person. You know, we talk about spiritual formation. Before that spiritual formation, there is a personal formation, right? Um, and so you have to kind of think about your cultural formation, who you are as a person. How was that form in the incubation of the dual culture that has kind of nurtured you? Right? And you can see that one picture that looks kind of surrealist, kind of postmodern kind of a picture. I thought that captured really well the conflict many of the clients I saw, um, including what you call TCKs or MKs, right? They're culture kids. If you work with many missionaries, it is a challenge when you've got not only two culture, right? Home culture and a culture uh, where you reside, and then you wonder where I really am. And then, you know, um, they're constantly juggling to do various relocations location, right? So that's called the third culture key. But the, all of this is talking about the, uh, the displacement of folks who are struggling through uh, different location, social location, but also in terms of uh, who, who am I, right? In the midst of all these rapid change. To do a quick uh, sort of overview, uh, there's a theorist by the name of Barry who has done a lot of research in Canada on acculturation. And uh, many uh, folks who have studied this in terms of the cultural uh, people who migrate and when you relocate, how this impact your um, identity, they, you know, this kind of captures um, at a two dimension, home culture as well as the host culture. Uh, and if you could kind of think of it as low to high on each of these dimensions, you could kind of think about your location in terms of if you are high in the home culture as well as high on the host culture, you're considered integrated. So when we talk about bicultural, it means you're 100% fully integrated on both sides. So many of you, if you came very young or if you were born here, probably you're very fluent in English, right? But you still probably love kimchi jjigae and tenjang jjigae too, right? <laughs> So that's kind of your biculturalism, and so that's kind of being integrated, right? Um, so the assimilation is somebody who may be high in terms of the host culture, but low uh, in terms of their home culture, right? So this is this was really common, I would say, in the 60s and 70s, where early immigrants, right, were um, really pushing their children to quickly learn English. And don't even speak Korean at home, because that was a model of assimilation. Why? That your immigrant parents worked really hard, right, in the you know downtown and liquor store or whatever, but they quickly bought a house in the suburb to get you to study and go to good college, right? Uh, 
And then the goal was to, um, you know, have our children get into the mainstream as quickly as possible. And that's the assimilation model, that we, you're going to be part of the fabric of this country, not as a, at the margin, but at the center. So that's the assimilation model. Um, there are folks, actually, who rejected that, right? And so we may have some, maybe first generation, but even some second generation now who talk about uh, high on the home culture, but low on the, you know, the mainstream. So instead of, you know, the assimilation model was more toward, like, maybe uh, white identification. So, you know, trying to assimilate very quickly. This will be the opposite extreme of folks who just, like, will not want to, you know, learn English, right? They only read Korean newspaper. They only watch Korean news, right? This is, like, maybe your dad. <laughs> or my, your grandparents, right? <laughs> you guys are younger. Um, and so they only, you know... Um, you know, lived around in K-Town and just in much of an isolation. So that's kind of a rejectionist kind of model. And then there's a group called marginalized. Marginalized group is actually low on both, low on home culture as well as host culture. And it's interesting, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I was working um, in Cerritos at the time, and I would see many, uh, at the time, adolescents who were at risk um, these were sheriff department who were referring um, Korean um, kids who were involved in all kinds of gang activity and um, you know breaking law and so forth. And this is the marginalized group. And research show that people who are at the highest risk uh, for sort of um, you know engaging in this kind of behavior uh, were the ones who had no identity. They didn't care to be in either group. And you can see why they may be at risk for gangs, right? Because gang provided instant identity. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. So this kind of is a different, um, if you could just start thinking about in terms of uh, whether you identify more, you know, in, in one culture or another. Just in terms of your own background, where do you see yourself? Would you say you are high on both, low on both, or mix. Yeah. Okay, how many of you guys think you are integrationist? How many of you say you are, I don't like the word rejection, but maybe inculturated. <laughs> You're more Korean identified. Not really. Yeah. So the majority of you guys identify as integrationist. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, more uh, recent arrivals, they may go through the stage of first, you know, rapidly trying to assimilate. So I have some international students who are more fiercely assimilated, right, or working toward assimilation than maybe those who are born here, right? Um, so my point here is this. Um, the literature suggests those who are integrationists, meaning high in the you know, home culture as well as high in the host culture, actually would be healthiest because you are fluent in both language, you are behaviorally fluent and adaptive in both culture. That's what the literature says. But I had a serious question. <laughs> so I, I'm considered 1.5, so I am right there in the integration side. But I could tell you that I've, I've, I have seen clients who seem, I would say, more westernized when they come through the door, but they were struggling. 
not at the conscious level, they couldn't really articulate why they were struggling, but there was a conflict. In some ways, the, the kind of inner tension, inner conflict, um, I think at the time when I was seeing the clients, they were not able to verbalize. But soon I started to put together, I, for example, I'll give you an example of a client who was, I would say, second generation. She came to see me, uh, I would say, in her late 20s, early 30s. And initially, the presenting concern that she was depressed. And the reason she was depressed, like most young adult, uh, the task, ever since Freud said, you know, the, the task of adult is work and love, right? That you have to figure out what you're going to be in terms of your career identity, vocation, and love in terms of who you're going to, right, love and commit to. So there's a, that's an issue of commitment, both work and love. And um, this is when, you know, when, you know, when you are younger, you know, you could attend Korean church or eat Korean food or whatever, and then you really, you know, hang around a bunch of other kids at school and just kind of fit in, right? It's, so you could juggle both, right? And that's what the biculturalism is suggesting, that you're fluent both in behavior as well as the language, and you could fit into both groups, and this is why you're most well-adjusted. Where that clash really comes about is in the young adulthood when you start having to make a decision about mate, who you're going to marry, and what you're going to be, right, career-wise. Now, this is where you have most conflict with your parents, right? Because as soon as you say, mom, dad, I'm going to be a musician, <laughs> we laugh, right? Because you know the answer. What, what are they going to say? No. No. <laughs> Yeah, these days, you know, at least the K-pop are making it. But back then, I tell you, when I was growing up, there wasn't any Korean making it in this country doing singing, right? So there's no way you could be a singer. I was going to be an art history major, and my mom, the first thing she said is, I'm going to disown you. Because <laughs> I don't know any, you know, art history major who end up with a jo you know, job after you graduate, right? So... What happens? Like, you may have all these artistic sensibility and interests, but they are only thinking math and science, right? Why? Because the first-generation parents, the language is the biggest barrier. So they don't, they're thinking in their mindset that there's no way you're going to make it in this country if you choose any major besides math and science. And by the way, that's the only thing that most probably white kids you grew up with just didn't like it. <laughs> Majority. So, like, that's where we're going to all gravitate toward, right? To just get a job. <laughs> We thrived on white phobia. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna pick on. No, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean. <laughs> so you know, this is why the career is a huge area of conflict. So going back to this client, you know, she was struggling. It was um, so you know, typical. You know, her father was an engineer, and the only you know major that father was you know willing to tolerate was math and science. And she was, in, of course, interested in something outside of that, right? So career, she striked out. Not only that, she was dating somebody who was non-Korean. And guess how that's going to go? Not good, right? The first-generation Korean parents, they think it's like, no! <laughs> Anybody outside, right? I mean, I think they're loosening up a little bit more these days, right? But still, back then, um, in the 80s, it was just unheard of, right? So... She was depressed because she couldn't imagine, what am I going to do? I'm in love with somebody who's not Korean, and I wanted to major and, you know, have a career that my parents cannot approve. 
But she was very close to her parents, and this is why the conflict came about, which is going to be. And she was stuck. You know, am I going to fulfill myself or do what my parents are wanting me to do? She couldn't decide. So for three years, she just stayed stuck and was very depressed because she couldn't give up her boyfriend, nor could she, you know, marry him, right? It was just like, it was difficult. I won't tell you that ending because it took a long time. <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess trying to illustrate that although the research or at least scholarly literature at the time was suggesting biculturalism was ideal, it was less than ideal for individuals that I worked with, that they were conflicted. Okay, and that's where my journey began because I wanted, I wanted to understand more deeply. And so this is a question to you. Why does all of this matter? How does the culture, you know, function or work in your own life? If most of you have identified yourself as an integrationist, meaning you are high on both home culture as well as host culture, how does the you know, cultural conflict appear in your life? In your, re, in your relationship with your parents, for example, where does the rubber meet the road? Is there a conflict? Where everything you do right now is all lovely and they are all embracing? Did you follow their way? <laughs> did you ever have any conflict? Yeah. What did you do when you were stuck? Your way or their way? Their way. Their way. <laughs> You know, this is kind of interesting. Actually, um, I was doing a research with one of my doctoral students because we, you know, uh, we were interested in this question about whether uh, people were marrying in within group for, or mar marrying outside, right, outside of the ethnic group. And what we discover um, that you know, closeness with parents is very important, but um, in fact, a lot of conflict was created by that closeness. So if you were distant to both your mother and father, maybe there was a higher tendency to marry out because you didn't care. <laughs> and what was interesting is that if you had even one parent you were close to, most of them were marrying in. Now we have found some exception. Okay, because there were some exception of people who were close to their parents but still married out. Right? So we thought something's wrong because we, that we found a, this wonderful pattern, right? It would be so easy if we just had two groups, right? But there was few in the middle that was not following these pattern. What we discover is that those who are close to parents, they married up because the parents were okay. <laughs> so these were more acculturated parents. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, right? That makes sense. Yeah, I don't know whether it will, you know, generalize. We'll have to collect more data to, you know, test this out. But um, I guess what I'm trying to point out is that closeness, closeness with parents sometimes creates some conflict because we feel the loyalty, right? The filial piety is a critical factor of what it means to be good sons and daughters. But the closeness, especially if your parents hold one value and you hold another, that creates conflict. And that's a challenging, right, thing to navigate. Right, especially as a young adults, when you're trying to make decision about you know whom to marry and you know what I'm gonna be, right? And you have to kind of understand the mindset of the first generation where they've been at the margins and they've been striving to make it. So for immigrants, economic survival was everything. 
So when you say, I think I'm going to be a pastor, that was no-no back then, you know? Artist, musician, and pastor, right? I don't know how it is today. Maybe our parents are like more, you know, <laughs> faithful and it's okay now. <laughs> but back then when I told my parents that I'm going to marry a guy who's going to be a pastor, my father laughed and said, you know, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> you know what he, my, my father said? Do you know what they do to pastor's wife? She, you know, this was his vision of what it means to be a pastor's wife, that I'm going to be locked in a dungeon and I have to pray all day. <laughs> Obviously, my father was not saved back then. <laughs> I know. I, I, I thought, you know, if you're going to kill me, just do it fast. You know, but not the slow death of Pastor's wife. <laughs> and you're recording this, right? <laughs> I hope my husband doesn't find out. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, you have to stay tuned till next week to find the ending of my story because it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> yeah, but I guess I'm just trying to kind of get you warmed up to seeing that there is a challenge. You know, when we're trying to navigate the East and the West, the old, you know, values, traditional values with more modern values. It's like mixing of water and oil. Not easy. And so... These are some questions. I, you know, if we had a little bit of time, uh, what I wanted to do was ask you to maybe spend a little bit of time with maybe two or three in your group to just think about how has the complexity of cultural values conflict in your life, the Korean and the American side, your parents and the mainstream, how these values have conflicted in your personal life as who you are as a, you know, individual. How has that affected in your family relationship? And how does it show up in the church or in the ministry? Okay, just let's take a few minutes. Yeah, the biculturalism, dual culture. Yeah, so you guys are all bicultural, right? Or hybrid of the two. Okay, well, you're, you're, you're attending Korean church, so. <laughs> by choice, by choice you're here, <laughs> Justin. <laughs> So the, the hybridity or the, the, the cultural clash of the two systems, how does it impact or manifest in your life, personally, at an individual level, family level, as well as church and ministry? Okay. So you know what you're, you're talking about is the bottom line. Koreans are really good at, you know, they love the bottom line, right? Ultimately, they want you to be successful. And this is very much of the immigrant mentality, right? Um, they came to this country, like most immigrants, so that they could have a piece of that apple pie. They came with that hope and dream. And so they want, and part of their love, right, their love language is you're going to succeed in this country. And in order to protect you from marginalization, their idea was for you to study. Because education for, you know, thousands of years in Korea under Confucianism was all based on education. The only way you could jump over the class, right? The class barrier was really big. If we talk about, you know, racism in this country, it's classism in Korea, right? Not as bad as India in terms of the caste system, but still it was very much of a class system, right? So the only way you could go up in the class was through education. 
So you can see why your first-generation parents, when they come here as a minority in this country, the way they thought you could overcome that marginalization was all through education. And that was true to a certain point, but things have changed, right? And I think I a little bit overheard your conversation about your parents may mean well, but it's also challenging that they don't know what it is to be growing up here and wrestling in the mainstream. So they could advise you based on their own life experience up to the point. Like, you know, they were maybe, if they came to college, um, you know, they were mostly educated in Korea, so they knew that system. And based on that system, they're making a lot of um, recommendation, trying to guide you. Um, and part of it is also because they're isolated, right, and marginalized. They don't quite know what it means to make it in the mainstream, and so in many ways, the challenge of the second or the next generation is, how do I make it in this country without a model? Someone to mentor me, right? Um, I used to do a lot of research with first-generation college students, with Hispanic and uh, African-American students. And the biggest challenge for them is that they didn't have anyone in their family who has gone to college. And that's what it means to be first-generation college students. In fact, it was so hard that they didn't know the difference between community college and four-year. And they didn't, and even if they just by accident made it into the, um, you know, four-year system, they had no one, you know, within that system guide them, right? So that's when I realized how critical it is to have, you know, parents or some family member who has broken in. So when you see that your parents are immigrants in this country, it's very difficult for them to imagine what it is for you to break through. Although that's what their hopes and dream is, right? So they're pushing you and all of that out of love. It's a pressure, right? Because you're feeling the pressure from both sides and it's really challenging to navigate. But they mean well, but sometimes not really fully understanding because they cannot live what it is to be you, right? In, you know, in your own shoes. Apart from your on an individual level, what about in terms of other relational dynamic in the family? What are some challenges? Can you speak to them? Can you communicate? Yeah? Sometimes it's really hard. Back in the 80s, we didn't have too many parents who could speak English. And when I was doing therapy with many of these adolescents, I had to be a translator. Not just translating language, but also culture. Kids could only speak in English, the parents could only talk in Korean, and I wonder what happened at home. How do they talk? They don't talk. Yeah, and so that's, a, that's another challenge, right? There's a barrier. Parents work really hard. Back then, this is, I'm, I'm really talking about the 80s, right? It's so far back. Um, this is when, there was days when we didn't even have a cell phone. They only had beeper. And all the parents were working, in, you know, in K-Town, and the kids were a suburb in like, you know, Fullerton, Sunny Hill, or Whitney at Cerritos. And the parents at 3 o'clock would just beep them, <laughs> right? Trying to make sure that they're going straight home. Well, it's not going to happen. You know, the worst time in the United States is 3 to 5, when parents haven't come home yet, right? And kids are out of school. And that's when everything happened. <laughs> in those two hours. <laughs> The beeper just did not do it. <laughs> and now these days, you know, you could track them and everything on that cell phone. But still, you know, when you have the language barrier, it makes it even harder, right? Yeah. I don't want to leave you guys out there. But what, what came up in your group? 
<laughs> yeah, that you're a group. <laughs> yeah. You know, what I found in my research that when the parents came, you know, as an adult, right? Because that was back then, you know, post-65 immigration, most of them completed college in Korea and then came to the United States. Their mindset, even though like now they may have lived 30, 40 years in the United States, but they were formed, you know, as adult. Uh, so their mindset is very much still shaped by Korea, right? Um, so, you know, even though majority of their life is now spent here and they may have assimilated in some level, the way they're thinking about college where you guys are now dealing with like relationships and career is still set in that old way. And then what's interesting is that people who came in the 70s are sort of frozen in the 70s. <laughs> if you watch like, you know, that Korean drama about, you know, called 1988 or whatever, you can see the funny era, right? Um, in a way, like those immigrants at that time was pretty much kind of isolated and stuck there. But the Korea have moved forward since then, right? And so the more recent arrivals maybe appeared, right, to be much more westernized than those folks who were kind of stuck in the 70s and 80s. And they still have furniture from back in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> <laughs> the clothes, the mindset, everything is just stuck back there. <laughs> that makes up for majority of the first generation church that we work with. <laughs> yes. How about like in terms of church and ministry? I mean, this church probably also have a first generation, right, parents. And then you got the second generation, the um, youth group, as well as college and EM. Um, how, how does it look like on Sunday? Separate services. Separate services, right? Now, this is a really interesting phenomenon, right? Because my husband is a senior pastor, and for years I've been trying to get the two, you know, all these different age groups to come together and have, you know, collective worship service. And I realize it's very difficult to do. It happens in, even like in American church, right? Where on Saturday evening is like a family service. But Koreans, as soon as they get arrive at the parking lot, they all go to their separate room. <laughs> We only get together for the meal time, right? But even then, the, the tables are set up so that we're all segregated. <laughs> Have you wondered why? This is what happens. The Koreans are separated hierarchically. Oh. Yeah? So by age, gender, I mean, like when I used to go to the cell, I mean, um, cell group, right? uh, small group gathering, it was so funny to watch all the men in the living room, all the women in the kitchen, and guess who's in the, you know, um, the main uh, master ba uh, bedroom? The kids. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, even in a cell group, we couldn't like all sit around and just talk. Well, first of all, language barrier, I told you that, right? But even if there's no language barrier, we still segregate like this. Do you ever wonder why? See, I think the American system is based on this idea of egalitarianism. You know, the idea that older young, male or female, everybody have value and worth, equal value. So this is why you could go, hey, dad, right? Because we're now we're equal, right? We could just have this chat, man. <laughs> 
you know, when I was trying to hold the family, this is funny, because like I was learning family therapy and all of that, and as I was going to help, you know, two generations, I get them in the room, I cannot get them to talk. You know, I had kids who were coming in, like 16, 17-year-old, who were just caught, right, uh, you know, stealing or whatever, and the sheriff had, you know, brought them in. It was, their, you know, I, at the time, I could only get them into the family session. It was court-ordered. And the kid is in there because he did something bad, right? But in front of dad, he would not talk back. And then the parents are yelling and so upset, right? But the kid would not talk back. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. I bet he's not like this with his homies or whatever, right? In the gangs and whatever. He was in the mischief. But in front of dad, he was very quiet. And so that's kind of when I start to see the hierarchy, right? So it was not just the language barrier. Because I, then I realized I was not just doing the language translation. I had to do some cultural brokerage and helping understand the hierarchy, right? Uh, and what barrier that created for the son who was feeling very lonely. And I told you that the at-risk group uh, are the kids who just did not feel they belong anywhere. And so the kids... Uh, that created the instant kind of connection, became family. And those were really difficult bond to break. Right? Yeah. So I wanted to share with you a little bit about the impact of culture on individual, because that's where I was interested. I'm not studying culture as an anthropologist, which is studying, you know, cult you know like a group of people. I'm not even interested in you know, culture as a sociologist. There's a lot of sociologists studying religion as like an organizational group and so forth. As a psychologist, I was interested in seeing how the culture impact at the individual level. So one of my um, research was focused on second generation. I picked second generation because I figure these are people who um, you know, very fluent in terms of language and uh, cultural you know, assimilation and uh, acculturation. But I wanted to see how, for the second generation, the traditional values were still in or inside them, you know, how it was embodied. So I, I went and interviewed second generation, highly successful women. Now, I chose successful women, not because I was just, you know, so biased as a Korean, right? <laughs> I'm interested in success. <laughs> but I wanted to see... Uh, Women who were successful, how they are figuring out career and family, right? Because that's where that would be the highest level of conflict. I was going straight after conflict in terms of two clashing together. What was interesting is that I, I selected each of these women that I interviewed at the highest level of their profession, whatever prof, you know, profession they selected, whether it was a law or medicine or um, entertainment industry, whatever career they chose, they were at the peak of their career. And many of these women that I interviewed um, talked about how, um, boy, when they were growing up, they knew there was gender discrimination. <laughs> the parents treated the brother and the, you know, the sister, the girl, boy and the girl in the family differently, right? Like, man, my brother could just be in his like uh, sweats or whatever on Saturday and relax, but I knew I cannot relax. If my mom is in the kitchen, I have to be in the kitchen helping her. So she knew there was a gender differences, okay? But what was interesting is that they, you know, they were saying, but we knew there was one thing that was equal. You know what that was? 
we were equally expected to be successful. <laughs> you know, at home, you have to like, do, you know, when mom is in the kitchen, you better be in the kitchen helping her, right? That's what the girls are supposed to do. But when you go out, you know, in the mainstream, at school, career, you should have equal success. They didn't discriminate between boy or girl, right? So it was interesting that this is why I selected the female to study, because I wanted to know, okay, you were pushed equally to succeed. So what happened when you got there? In fact, many of them talked about how they were giving up their health, even relationship, to get to the top. Because you know, they really hit the, the top of their playing field. But once they got there, I asked you know, all of them, what they would do if they got married and they had children. Do you know every one of these successful women, even though they were willing to sacrifice so much, right? Their health and relationship, whatever, to get there, they said, I will go home and raise my kids. Which was really interesting because I wanted to know why and they couldn't explain to me why. They just thought it was right. So make the long story short, I was doing this interview, and what I came away from that interview was I, I went uh, expecting that all these women, highly successful women, they would give me this much story about their mothers and very thin chapter on their fathers, right? Wouldn't you say so? This was my bias. I found the opposite. All of them talked this much about their dad and this much about their mothers, so I thought, this is really crazy. It was just counter to my expectation. So I went back twice and the third time, and they still say the same thing. In fact, I was so curious, I even asked them, come on, do you have a good relationship with your mom? Do you like, you know, have conflict or anything like that? And all of them said, no, I really love my mom. I totally respect them. You know, many of their mothers were teachers and nurses and so forth. Um, and, you know, they were strong women, but they're willing to give up and, you know, raise us. And so I have a real respect for my mom. She's a strong woman. Um, I love her. But that's all they could tell me. But they said this much about their dad. Now, what do you make of that? These are all Korean second-generation women, highly successful. So I was analyzing one day, you know, this is me sitting there in the middle of the night trying to figure out, like, I don't understand, nothing in my, you know, literature is telling me that this is what to expect with Korean women. <laughs> then I realized, you know, in the, um, I grew up um, in Korea in a traditional home, and there is inside room and there's outer room, inner room, anpang, and, you know, the, the public area. So guess what, the, the, in, the, in Korean culture, Male and female have a dual, like a role, role that is assigned. So what the fathers were doing was preparing even the daughters how to succeed in the outer world, right? The men prepare for the outside. Women and the inside preparing in the inner room. So the reason why the daughters could not say this much about the mothers was because mother was transmitting their cultural values silently. They weren't talking. They were doing so all of these second-generation women, they couldn't even speak Korean. Most of them were just fluent only in English, right? Yet they picked up, embodied, right? Osmosis through just watching mom. So they were saying, I know I will go home and raise my kids. Just like my mom gave up her career, right? Remember all of, all of them described that my mom had college degree, had a job, but gave up when they had babies, right? When they had us. 
So in their mindset, this is what I watch my mom do. So I'm I know I'm going to go home and raise kids. The reason why they could talk this much about fathers, all the fathers were preparing daughters or sons, both of them, to succeed outside. So they could say a lot about how their father were nurturing them to succeed, how to be strong, how to fight in the mainstream. So this is the second generation daughters. Now, my point here is to show you how the cultural values do not just disappear. Even in the second generation, it's been absorbed, it is internalized, especially if you're close. I think the, um, you know, if I had more opportunity to study, I would even look at, uh, uh, you know, participants who didn't have a close relationship because of the successful women that I selected all had close relationship with their parents. So that was sort of the exception, right? But I was interested in just understanding how the conflict was resolved. And, um, you know, what was interesting here uh, what I found is that if you put the second-generation daughter and the first-generation mom, they would both be in the kitchen, right? Because they said, you know, even though I'm very successful in my career, I would go home and raise my kids. So they would both look the same in the kitchen. But you know there was an exception. Because I was interested in asking the second-generation woman, right, why? Why would they do something like this? And you know every one of them said this, that had to be my choice. In fact, one of the women actually was dating and was engaged to a man who insisted that she, did, she would give up her career and be a housewife. And guess what she did? You know what she did? She dumped him. <laughs> and she chose somebody else to marry. And the interesting thing is, in my interview, she said, you know what, what's really sad is that that would have been my choice. But because the guy was insisting, I knew he was wrong for me. So gentlemen, if you're listening, <laughs> if you want a strong career woman, <laughs> you let her have her choice, right? I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it is a challenge. I think it's very difficult to be a dual career family. That's for sure. But the study shows um, that men and women are both physically capable of bonding to the baby. I could, I could attest to that because, you know, I started my doctoral study at USC when my daughter was only one. My oldest was only one year old. I couldn't be here today if my husband was 100% supportive. And I could tell you that he is, I would say, more nurturing you know, um, than any man I have I have seen. You know, he actually grieved. <laughs> so I know you can attach, but I think there's a lot of social expectation. What you're describing is a social. So this is not physiological thing, but it's a social cultural expectation that shapes right. Um, and it's not easy on I think men or women. I think uh, you know this is a going off the tangent, you know, because I, I, I won't have, you know, attachment is another area I do a lot of study on, so I could talk about this all day, but um, that children really do benefit from both male and female involvement, you know, so ideally both parents will be involved. I think I'm describing in the traditional Asian culture, you know, or traditional Korean culture, there was gender divide, 
just like this in a living room versus a kitchen. Because of that gender socialization and divide, there was sort of like a division of labor, right? And so the men were expected to work, so they were preparing for public, whereas women traditionally did not have opportunity to succeed career-wise, right? So they became homemakers, and so they, they were trying to nurture their daughters how to be good homemakers, right? So what's really interesting that is uh, when we look at some of this gender, uh, gender socialization, it was actually the mothers and the grandmothers that insisted guys never enter into the kitchen. Just look, reflect back, they, they will tell you that if men come into the kitchen, you are no longer men, so you can't be in it. <laughs> Right, so that's how that's how your parents or your uh, fathers and grandfathers grew up, right? So they this strict kind of gender divide was created and sometimes reinforced by women, because they were afraid they would demasculinize, because it was and this is an interesting study by the way, there was a, a gender study where if women are raising both girls and boys, how do boys learn how to be a man? Interesting question, right? This is an interesting question for traditional Korean culture. How do your fathers learn to be a man if they're nurtured by mothers? Hmm? Collect? Yeah, so you know, so what happens is this men become men by not positive identification, the positive, negative, not in good and bad, but Boys, okay, so girls have to learn what it means to be a girl, right, or woman, having that identification with mother, right? That's called positive identification. Because she, mom is a female, and I'm a female, so I learn how to be woman by watching my mom. But boys, if you're close to your mom, then you don't have closeness with the father. So we call negative identification. There's absentee of closeness with father, then how do I learn how to be a man? You learn how to be a man through the gender stereotype idea of manhood. So back in the old days, even in the U.S., right, in the 50s and 40s, they had John Wayne, the silent, you know, strong type, no tears, right? The Western cowboy type. Or you had, Hugh, you know, Hugh Hefner kind of playboys, right? So cowboys or playboys. This, this, <laughs> right? this is a... <laughs> But this is a gender stereotype. So instead of close relationship with father, positive identification with a father engagement in raising the boys how to be a man, they had to learn how to be a man only through this kind of you know, image, stereotype image. So I'm just arguing here, based on the literature, that it is ideal for both father and mother to be engaged in nurturing girls and boys, yes? But I think it's just economics, right? The challenge of both, you know, mother and father to work and make a decision how to then raise kids, right? Sometimes, you know, um, depending on the, the, the salary, it, you know, we make decision about who's going to stay home and raise kids, and it's really challenging. It's not easy. I mean, you know, uh, I was very lucky that, you know, my husband was very uh, supportive, and he, uh, we had to spend you know, 18 years, 20 years, figure out who's going to pick up and drop off kids. <laughs> and, you know, that was our commitment. You know, we will equally commit to raising our children. 
but that was not easy. You know, there was a time period when they were young. You know, I, you know, I'm jumping ahead to my story, but while I was finishing, you know, my doctoral study for four years, I just sat in my nest, waited for my younger daughter to grow up. Because I, you know, I was committed to one of us picking them up. <laughs> That's the only thing I have done, by the way. <laughs> it's like, no matter what, one of us will pick up the kids. That was a commitment. Um, and I was willing to give up my studies if my husband wasn't going to, you know, follow through. So, you know, so this is saying that, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of what we watch grow up, you know, uh, through our parents is because the social structure in Korea, that was what worked. And here, we have some other things that we have to juggle and manage, but it's still challenging, and I, I hear you. I think many of the women, um, for me, it's, it would have been so much easier if I just worked. If I had a, like a nine-to-five job, it would have been easier. Because I have a career, it's a whole other ballgame, right? I couldn't just stop, right? Then if I lose the continuity, then it's very difficult to be successful in what I do. But I, it also doesn't mean that I didn't feel that I could just give up uh, my children in order to have a career. So I just slowed it down, way down, in order so that I could do both. And that, that was only possible because he was willing, my husband was willing to support. So it was like both committing to do something like that. And it's not for everyone, by the way. Okay. Is it changing? Yes, you know, it's interesting. They have done some studies, and uh, actually the whole idea of a stay-at-home mom is actually more of sort of an illusion. You know, maybe they were able to do that for a brief time in the 50s or 60s, um, and then very select group in Orange County, maybe. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you see, but majority, majority of people cannot, right, survive on a single, you know, uh, breadwinner. So it's, it's all comes down to the economics. Yeah. Well, I think that maybe there's a little bit more of a fluidity now, socially acceptable for stay home or Mr. Mom, but still those are more of an exception than the rule. I think we get a lot of like hype on these things because they're exception, not the rule, right? Because um, on average, still men do make more money. Um, not that, it, you know, that's right, but it's just how it is, right? Um, and it may d depend on different career, different type of occupation. But America is so far behind. Like, you know, in some ways, Korea have a better paternity and maternity leave. Uh, they model after Europe. Europe has three-year maternity leave. And it takes about, on average, three years for self to form, so that makes total sense to me, that they would guarantee job, right? The woman will not lose job because she decided to have a baby and stay home for three years to raise a baby. This country, three months. <laughs> Yeah, but they cover about a year, year or more. 
Um, and Korea is following suit. I think they now guarantee like two years. So in some ways, Korea and Europe is further ahead in terms of you know, family-friendly kind of policies than in the United States, right? It's kind of ironic. Yes. So there's a whole other topic, you know. You would have to invite me another time to talk about family and children and parenting because I do a lot of seminar on parenting as well. So I, I kind of detracted a little bit here. <laughs> but my point with this story is that you could see how the culture, even in the second generation, even if they cannot speak the language, they have internalized the value, right? And so we have to take culture much more seriously. And so I've been studying this for a while. Um, and in their story, even though these women cannot verbally articulate, what was interesting is that all of them describe, remember these are the highly successful women, right? So all of them were very driven to success. You know, talk about parents driven to success. Guess what? It was the fathers were talking about their Han. <laughs> you talk about Koreans, right, with lots of Han. 한국 사람들에게 Han이 The Han, a translation in English, is it would be lament. And there's a, a theology, a theologian, Korean theologian, who talk about this kind of Han theology, right? Han is the kind of the grief of people who were oppressed. We could even talk about it as the sin of oppression. And the lament, the resentment, right? The anger that is sitting in many folks who are struggling with the Han, right? So sometimes we talk about this maybe as like a trauma. So there's a historical trauma, right? The Koreans have gone through. And the reason I put 고구려, right? Because this is like even before modernity. Pre-modern Korean history for thousands of years talk about just surrounded by right uh, enemies, <laughs> territorial, and every every generation has struggled with such battle, right? But that continued even in the the E dynasty transitioning into the modern era, and as you see, right, Mr. Sunshine, if you guys all watch that <laughs> dramatized version of what it was for Korea to right. Um, in some ways, impacted by the imperialism, the colonialization, uh, when there was Japanese occupation, then you know, you know the whole history of the Korean War and so forth. So Han is very much you know foundational to I think Korean psyche. If there's a way to talk about Korean psyche, so I was thinking about this Han of people, of Korean people, very unique to Koreans. It's not only at that kind of collective level. You could also see that at the individual level. And not only that, you could see that kind of collective and individual on a conscious level and unconscious level. You understand, right? Collective, individual, conscious, unconscious, on both levels, right? So what was interesting in, in all of these successful women's stories that they would talk about their fathers. There was This is one commonality. All of them talk about what it was like when their father first came to this country Right to succeed. One of them, I mean, they were all you know college educated. In fact, one woman talked about actually her father before came to the United States was uh, getting his PhD in chemistry in Germany, and while he was earning that you know doctorate degree, he would teach as a graduate student, and then he would do paper route to support family. And in the winter, it was so cold, and he didn't have money for a thick coat. What he did is he would fold the newspaper and stuff it in his coat. Okay, this is what 
the daughter remembered. I remember every one of the participants asked them, what is your earliest memory? And this is what came up for one woman. And another woman said, you know, my father, well, we, they say we lived in K-Town when my father was getting his second master's degree. So, you know, he had a, like, I think MBA, and then he was getting his law degree second. So two master's degrees. We were living in, you know, K-Town and in the apartment. It was so run down. They would tell the story that when the light switch would come on in the kitchen, there'd be cockroaches running around. Now, what's interesting about each one of these stories is that all of them, this is their earliest memory. And the thing is, they don't remember because this happened before they were three. And I know for sure most of you do not have memory prior to three years old, right? Now, do you know why three is a magical number? Maybe some people could push to even maybe two and a half, two. But the earliest memory is usually around two to three because that's when the language came in. When you have language, you remember. Now, it doesn't mean that infants do not have memory. Because, by the way, they've done developmental study with infants, and they've done it at three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months old. And the way they tested memory was, you know how like babies are put in the crib and there's a mobile? They tied the string around their ankle, and at three months, they were tied to it, and then they just accidentally figured out, oh, if I kick, this will like move. So they go back to the same baby at six months and tie the string around, and they start kicking really fast. Nine months, 12 months, they will kick harder. <laughs> they get stronger, right? So we know that infants have memory. But none of you remember your birth story. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> that was God's gift. <laughs> it wasn't just your mom who had the pain of delivering you. <laughs> you didn't want to remember that. <laughs> but. But you don't remember anything prior to two or three before you had language. So I know that these memories, because I was doing math, you know, how old they were, you know, when the parents were going through all of this, but they're remembering the story that was told to them. Because I know that most of them, by three and above, they were growing up in the suburb. So, you know, majority of them, because parents, it's inc incredible that the father succeeded within the seven to ten year time frame. So that they went, by the time they were growing up, they're all growing up in the suburb, you know, very well acculturated in the middle class. What's interesting is that even though they all grew up middle class, what they remember is this early beginning of their parents' struggle. And guess what? That was the drive. You ask me, what was the motivation for success? They would all remember those stories. This is why I'm telling you, this is an immigrant story. Even though they're now second generation, second generation was re collectively remembering what it meant, the insecurity the fathers had at the margin of trying to make it in this country. And that's what drove the second generation. The fathers were constantly talking, right? Remember this much story about dad? The dad were passing down the story of their struggle. And even the daughters remember that, and that was a drive that fueled their success. Because, you know, I asked them, what is your definition of success? And, you know, all of these women said, I would have enough money. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. This is why all the Asian women were all greedy, you know, money, money, money. No. I said, how much will be enough? And she said, you know, enough. Enough so that I could take care of my aging parents and that I would have enough that when my younger siblings come to me and want, you know, need money, I could just give it to them. I said, how much? Thousand? Two thousand? No. 10,000, I'll just give it to them. Oh, so you want to be a bank. 
<laughs> no, I wouldn't like lend it to them. I would just give it to them. So this is their right idea of success. This is what they learn from their parents, right? That was their definition. And what was interesting is that they didn't define their success on an individual level. Like, you know, I would be successful X, Y, and Z for myself. Remember, their definition is based on what I can provide for my family of origin. <laughs> that was really interesting. So this was a story that I realized, even the second generation, even though on the surface they could only speak English, they seemed very independent, very individualistic, in their mindset were very collectivistic. And they were living at the Han of their parents. The second generation were still struggling with the first generation recollection of insecurity. And we're talking about economic insecurity, fundamentally, right? What it means to be minority, racial minority in this country, living on the margins, trying to succeed, and they pass the buck to the second generation that you will carry the torch. And your success is like my family success, right? This is what I mean about collective psyche. You understand, right? You could all resonate with the story, right? Okay. So this means then on for each of you who are who have raised your hand as integrated, you have two selves. You didn't know that. I'm not saying you're like, you know, multiple personality or anything. There's a part of you who identify with the more individualistic side. This is what's been socialized in the mainstream, right? This is what it takes to succeed in the mainstream, at the job, if you work for any kind of Western companies, right? You know, for me to teach in a white mainstream society, I have to be independent and individualistic because that's how we all operate. But you know, as soon as I go to the Korean church on Sunday, I, nobody knows me by my name. <laughs> They don't go, Jenny. You know, I'm always called by so-and-so's mother or so-and-so's wife. You see, I don't have an individual identity. I am defined by who I'm married to and who I mothered. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? That's a collective identity. That's a we consciousness. So being a bi-control, guess what I do? You know, on the weekend, I'm we conscious, in the Right? Friday through Saturday, Sunday at church, and Monday through Friday at school, I have to be eye conscious. And to do this back and forth, back and forth. Because many of you talk about, even though you kind of move away from your parents, you still have to go home on the weekend. <laughs> That's your journey back and forth on that freeway, from eye consciousness to we consciousness, and back and forth, back and forth. And this is, it gets harder and harder to navigate as you get older because you have to make some tough decisions about your career, about your mate, and how are you going to raise your children? Are you going to raise them to be weak conscious or eye conscious? <laughs> have you thought about that? You know, if you ever want to know, I should write a book, because I, I experimented both ways. Because <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had two girls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do this intentionally, by the way. The first one, I was trying really hard to, you know, do it by the book, you know, the American psychology way, right? Very independent. But then one day my grandma came and watched me and she said, that's not how you make 
babies grow up to be a human. (laughs) 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 And even my husband's like, oh, do we have to go through that again (laughs) with my second? So we don't be relaxed much more with a second child. And guess what? She's just like so we conscious when we were growing, when she was growing up, she would say like this one day, she's old enough to talk. She said, you know, mommy, do you know what is the worst thing in the world? So what is it? To be alone. Because, <laughs> you know, we kind of slept with her, right? That, that's how we consciousness is created. With my oldest, from the hospital on, we put her in the crib and in a separate room. Because I had an American friend who said, if you want to raise them, you're going to have to train from the beginning. And you know what? She's so independent. Even when she was in elementary school, she would come home, wash her hands, she would go right into her room and her desk and just be there. <laughs> My second daughter, real interesting, high school, with my older daughter, you know, away to college. So senior year, really tough year, right? So I said, you know, honey, I know that this is really difficult. You've got like maybe average three hours of sleep. What can I do as a mom to support you? Because I can't study for you. And you know what she asked for? Mom, let's study together. <laughs> so, you know, she got out of her room from her desk into the dining room. We cleared off our dining table. I'm on the one side and she's on the other side. Because I'm not usually up until like 2 a.m. grading papers or whatever. And she was working on her, you know, her class. This is a difference between eye consciousness and we consciousness. So it's possible to create we consciousness out of the second generation. <laughs> And there's a pros and cons to both. I, I could attest to that. One, super independent, and this is why she's just tramping around the world and never wanting to come home. <laughs> yes. And you know, from like college year, for all four years, she went from South America to Africa to Bosnia, now Europe. And we can't get her back home. And that's independence. <laughs> My other daughter, she can't wait to come home. She hates New Hampshire. <laughs> She's like, man, 언니가 날 속였어. <laughs> you know, she wanted to stay close, but you know, her sister instead said, hey, you have to go away to college. <laughs> she regrets it ever since she listened to her daughter, her sister. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think being a second generation, I don't know, male for myself, growing up in that conscious mindset, that's kind of like a, a like this mindset. Mm-hmm. I'm not where I want to be. Cut out my mm. Yeah, that's that's. Kind of this juggling. Yes, juggling. It's not yeah. like, oh, if I'm successful, I'm going to forge this for myself. Mm. Oh, thanks, mom and dad. Mm-hmm. I do want to share it, but if it's going to like slow me down to whatever path I want to go on, mm-hmm. I think as a psychopathic, something that's going on in my mind, <laughs> it's not difficult to say like, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm also very lucky. I don't need to like take care. Yeah. Financially. Yeah. That's really fortunate. (laughs) But you have to kind of think about this. Many of our parents who decided to immigrate to the United States, they already had a strong eye consciousness. Otherwise, they'd have never left their home country. Right? Yeah. And they're kind of torn. But this is what I'm saying. Most folks have this both sides. I consciousness and we consciousness, consciousness. And depending on what, which side is stronger, how you navigate the conflict between the two is going to just grow. 
as you get older and older in terms of taking care of your parents, raising kids, all human relationships can be defined by I consciousness versus we consciousness. So I think my spouse, mm -hmm. I think you have to. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to like, cut them out. Maybe it's because like, one unit. Yeah. Well, outside of my spouse, like to be honest, Uncles and aunts. I don't even consider them kind of family. Maybe like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I don't, does that mean I'm just super isolated? Yeah. Well, you're you have become super pragmatic, <laughs> which is very American. American pragmatism is very dominant in this country, and yet what you have decided in terms of that boundary is very much inside or outside boundary of the traditional Korean way. So you're a Korean man living in an American pragmatic world. <laughs> so that, that inside outside boundary, see some of your fathers and grandfathers, that inside boundary was all my buddies I grew up in Korea, or all the buddies, you know, from my alum, or my church, right? So that boundary, it's really interesting. My daughter watching uh, the soccer game. She's just like, they're crazy. <laughs> what Koreans are so crazy. You know, the whole the Red Bull thing, you know? It's like, what's going on? So this is one time in their life where suddenly the we consciousness is nationalism. <laughs> because we don't have, you know, like war and patriotism. This is the only way they can show it. And then we suddenly go back to we consciousness that shrink down to just my family. <laughs> right? So a lot of like, you know, kids growing up in this country get confused about like my parents are really racist. <laughs> but it's just survival. And they have put that boundary of usness around my immediate family survival, you see? So you're saying that that you know, survival of my nest could be just me or family, immediate family, or it could even go to the extended family. But depending on how this is going to weigh me down, it could shrink like this, right? The inside-outside boundary is really huge in the Asian culture. And so some ways, not only inside the church, we have a lot of struggle with the different age, right, and gender barriers, but we also have a lot of inside-outside cliques. And I find this, I mean, I used to be really, like, confused when I was, like, you know, working in the first-generation church. How come, because most, this is, like, what American missionaries ask. You guys talk about collectivism, but you guys are just, like, so clicky. <laughs> yeah, but that's because it depends on where that boundary is drawn. It's us-ness, we-ness, but the we-ness could be shrinking where that boundary, right, is. So I, I'm going to leave this juga as a homework to, until next week. And that question is this. I've been talking a lot about American eye consciousness or maybe modern eye consciousness versus traditional we-ness or Korean we-ness. Where does God come down? Okay. Thus far, I've been talking about psychology, culture, and how the culture impacts individual. Where is God in this? Is God for the I consciousness or is God for we consciousness? I don't know. I'm, I'm asking you the question. <laughs>
I want you to really think about this this week, okay? Because um, this is where I really, really said and wondered. Because I came when I was 10. I gave my life to Christ at 17 at UCLA. I mean, I went to church before, but I mean, like, seriously, seriously commit my life to Christ. That I was going to follow him. I will give everything up for the God's kingdom. But then I had to sit and wonder, is God for the American modern I self? Or is God, you know, caring about the we self? I didn't know where he came down. This is how I ended up teaching in Christian university or Christian seminary. That was my homework. And I'm giving you my homework. <laughs> like a professor. A good professor always leave with homework. <laughs> yeah? Okay. I know that, uh, wow, our time really went fast, right? I can't really, without my glasses, I can see she's very far. <laughs> but this is an interesting homework because I think, you know, we're talking here at church and ministry. I, I really do believe that how we see ourselves and culture, this is something that God cares about. And, um, you know, it totally impacts what we do and how we understand. Like, how does God want me to grow? What does it mean for me to grow um, and mature? What does it mean to even have a spiritual maturity? Because I told you, the cultural formation, spiritual formation, that's all connected to the self. This is why a pastor's wife has spent 30 years studying psychology. Because <laughs> you wonder, what is the relationship between psychology and ministry? You know where the overlap is? That we're both interested in growth of a person. And my husband also got a doctorate in marriage family when we were at you know, Fuller. So you think you come to my church and we're going to be the most psychologically oriented church, right? <laughs> but we are very careful about, you know, like doing therapy with congregation. I don't do that. But where ministry and psychology overlap has to do with the growth of a person. I think our Korean church especially have to focus not just about the external doing, but we also have to focus on the maturity, right? The growth of individual and also as a congregation. And so this is a homework for you. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to just share our journey in terms of just this, um, the, uh, the juggling between the two cultures, uh, different values, back and forth, um, not just on the freeway from home to work, home to work, but what it means just even for ourselves, how we have these I consciousness and we consciousness dwelling in us. And where are you, Lord? Where are you in the midst of all this juggling? What is it that you desire for us in order that we become more of an imitator of you and what you desire for us? As we meditate and um, sit with this uh, this week, Father, I just ask that you will continuously uh, work yourself in us and uh, reveal yourself. Help us, Lord, that this EM, young men and women, that they will grow more deeply in you and knowing uh, who, who we are, who you create us to be, but also to understand what it means for us to be your um, your servants in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.